Luke 10, 25 through 37. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Let's pray. Father in heaven, With the psalmist, I ask that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The lawyer in the scripture passage that Chris just read came to Jesus wanting to make sure that he had eternal life. He wanted to enjoy God's blessings and avoid judgment. And so Jesus asked him what is written In the law. And the lawyer knew the law and replied with the summary that Jesus himself had given Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus didn't say, No, 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 you got the answer wrong. It's this. He says, You answered well. Do that and you will live. And then the scripture says, Wanting to justify himself. In other words, he knew that he hadn't loved God perfectly. And he knew that he hadn't loved his neighbor perfectly. And so he asks this question, who is my neighbor? Does that include everyone? Because if he could limit the scope of his obligation, he thought he might be able to do it. In other words, if I can think of my neighbor as people who are like me, then this isn't a problem. But if my neighbor includes people I like to think are beneath me, maybe from a bad neighborhood in Flint, or maybe from a bad neighborhood even here in Holly, then I'm in trouble. Because I don't always perfectly love my neighbor. That tendency to hear a law of God And then to try to explain it in a way so that my imperfect obedience is somehow good enough shows the brokenness that is very deep 
within each of our hearts. And that brokenness starts very early on. When I became a dad, the first rule that I created for our household was very simple. No cars on the table. No cars on the table. Now that might seem like a strange rule. It's the most natural thing in the world for kids to play with cars on the table. Why, why did I make that rule? The reason is our apartment was being treated for bed bugs. And so we would put all of Isaac's toys, Rosie wasn't born yet, we would put all of Isaac's toys in plastic bags to protect them, to keep them from being sprayed with poison. But anything that touched the floor afterwards, even though we tried to clean the floor as best we could, potentially had poison on it. And so the last thing that I wanted was for his toys, especially the cars that he ran all over the floor, to be put on our table where we ate. So the first rule of the Martin household was no cars on the table. Strange sounding rules sometimes make really good sense in a very specific context. That rule was an application of what you might call an eternal law that I think exists in your household too. Don't kill your family. That's universal. Everybody acknowledges you're not supposed to kill your family. You might not need the rule, no cars on the table in your house, to abide by that standard. But we all live by the law, don't kill your family. So as we go to Exodus today, recognize the rules that we are about to see in Exodus interpret the Ten Commandments. We don't live in the same time and in the same place as Israel did. So although the law of God in the Ten Commandments does not change, the rules that show us how to apply them may or may not directly apply to us because we don't live in ancient Israel. I want to urge you to keep that in mind as we go to our text today. We are about to read some strange rules but they are given by a good and a loving God, and it is worth taking the time to understand them. Now, here's the second thing. The biggest reason we need context-specific rules that apply eternal laws to our context, to where we live, to what we do, is because in our hearts, we want to avoid obedience just like the lawyer Jesus spoke to wanted to avoid loving everyone. Isaac was less than 18 months old at the time I handed down no cars on the table. Rosie was not born yet. And he had little Lego cars and he had little race cars and he would play with them on the floor all over the apartment. And he learned this rule very fast. He knew that I meant business because I did not want poison on the table where we all ate. So he couldn't talk much, but he understood this rule very clearly. And so one day I was shocked when as less than a two-year-old, he was sitting in his high chair with a car in his hand and there was a roll of paper towels sitting upright on the table right at the end, right, right next to where his chair was. 
And he looked at me with his car in his hand, and he looked at the table, and he took his little car, and he put it on top of the roll of paper towels that was rested on the table, and looked at me and said, not in words, does this break the rule? In essence, I have heard the law, no cars on the table. But what does on the table really mean? He couldn't even talk yet, and he was already a little lawyer. In other words, the second point from this story is that the second we learn a law, we are immediately tempted to invent ways to get around it. So the law needs to be explained and applied very specifically. The value of a rule is in clearly applying the law. So in Exodus, we have just heard God reveal his eternal law in the form of the Ten Commandments. Now in the next three chapters, he explains very specific rules for how it applies, especially to people that Israelites might have thought didn't deserve fair and equal treatment under the law. God begins in a place that might shock some of you. He starts by explaining rules about slavery. And I believe the reason is this. The most natural thing in the ancient world was to say that laws that governed free people did not apply to slaves. This was actually true in Egypt. An Egyptian could kill a Hebrew with no repercussions because the Hebrew was a slave. So now, God is explaining right from the beginning of the nation of Israel how the Ten Commandments apply in Israel. It would have been very natural for the ancient Israelites to hear the law of God and to think, that applies to me. I don't know if it applies to my slave. And so he immediately answers that question. In other words, who is my neighbor? And God says, your servant is your neighbor. Over and over again, God shows that a person is a person and all people are made in the image of God and the law applies equally to all people. And at this point, I would normally go directly to the text and start preaching from the verses that we're going to be looking at. And the reason is, I am very committed to the idea, I firmly believe a pastor has to preach his main point from the Bible, from the text that he is using to preach. And so I want to be very careful to never preach a message that is founded in my opinion or to treat the scriptures in such a way that I use it as a starting point to talk about something and then I just say whatever I want to that's kind of maybe related. So normally, at this point, I would go straight to the text. We would read some and then I would say what I believe God has for me and for all of us based on that text. But the problem today is that we're about to talk about slavery. And so I've raised an issue that is a very painful topic for us as Americans. And so before we go to the text, let me say a couple of things about slavery in ancient Israel. We, especially as Americans, might think, why didn't God abolish slavery completely for his redeemed people? He rescues them from slavery. Why does he allow this Why is it possible to buy another human being in Israel? And so my first point today is not from Exodus 21 directly, 
but from a little bit of historical and cultural information that explains what slavery is in the Bible. And it's something that is totally different than the slavery that you or I are familiar with from our painful American history. So my first point today is, why did God allow slavery? And this is actually, oddly enough, the easiest point that I have to make today. The answer is, God did not allow slavery as we think of it. Hear me loudly, especially if you're a kid in school and you have friends who are not believers, you are going to get the question, well, your God doesn't have a problem with slavery. Hear me very clearly right now. The African slave trade that America was guilty of participating in was a capital offense. That means it was worthy of the death penalty according to God. So look with me. This is Exodus 21 where we're at today. If you haven't turned there already, let me encourage you to open your Bible. I really want you to see this. Exodus chapter 21. And before we look at our text, look with me at verse 16. This is very critical. God says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. God does not tolerate enslavement of people. I want to I want to stress the importance of that verse. God does not say it's okay. We recognize thou shalt not kill. Murder is clearly wrong. Why is it wrong? Well, partly because it defaces the image of God, partly because it steals life from someone. And in murder, you steal life from them in a few short moments through violence. But in slavery, you steal life from someone over the course of 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years. God does not tolerate it. He says very clearly, Whoever steals a man and sells him, that's what happened in the African slave trade or with other ethnicities that that Americans and other people took advantage of and forced into labor. God says whoever steals a man and sells him deserves to be put to death. And then he goes a step further and says anyone found in possession of that slave also deserves to be put to death. That means there is no room for plantation owners who were good and kind and gentle. American slavery was an offense to God that was punishable by death based on his word very clearly. This is a critical point because sometimes people say that the Bible doesn't condemn slavery, but it does strongly condemn the type of slavery that we had in America. And we have to have that settled in our minds. Otherwise, as we go to Exodus 21, we will immediately accuse God of being unfair, unloving, and unjust. Of having some people that he treats as more equal than others. The reality is, God treats all people the same. We are all equal before him. But if that's the case, then the question is, what kind of slavery was God allowing in Israel? What is this talking about? Why is it even possible? Because the sin of slavery runs deep in American history, we struggle to understand why anything even remotely resembling it could exist among God's people. 
So let me describe how slavery in ancient Israel was different. And you will be able to see some of this from Exodus chapter 21. Another passage that's really critical is Deuteronomy chapter 15. I'm not going to read anything specifically from there, but if this is an issue that you want to study more, let me encourage you to write down Deuteronomy 15 and read it later. Let me give you three points. Uh, Philip Riken is one of the commentators that I've been reading as I've prepared to preach the messages from Exodus. He points out three things, and I want to give them to you very clearly. Number one, slavery was voluntary. That doesn't even sound like slavery to us, and I think it really was very different. So number one, it was voluntary. Number two, it was temporary. It was not lifelong. And number three, this is perhaps one of the most unbelievable things, but it's true. It was constructive for the slave. It was not something that was only beneficial for the owner. It was constructive for the person who had sold themselves into slavery. I'm going to take each of those and describe how it's true and show you how the, how the Bible describes this. First, it was voluntary. We would, I think, rightly ask, if God condemned forcing someone into slavery, then where did slaves come from? And the answer is, in Israel, they came from people who were deeply in debt. Later in this chapter, there's a verse about if someone steals, they are instructed to pay back what they owe, in some instances, five times what they took. That would literally be impossible for someone who was motivated to steal because he didn't have enough. And so if you are unable to make restitution, God says, you sell your time and your labor and you are forced into serving because of what you've done. So in some instances, it was a punishment for a crime. In other instances, you have to remember, there's no such thing as crop insurance. Or if a lion or a bear comes and attacks your flock, or if wolves come and destroy your sheep, you have no way of recovering from that loss. And there are no banks. You can't borrow money to get by until you make money again. There is no way to feed your family if your source of income is destroyed or depleted. There's no such thing as WIC. There are no food stamps. The only way you could provide for your family would be to sell your labor to someone else. And in doing that, you would find food, clothing, and shelter. It's important to note here, too, another cultural difference that's easy to miss. There are no employers in ancient Israel. There's no manufacturing jobs. General Motors doesn't exist. There are no large companies. You don't fill out an application and agree to work for a certain wage. There are day laborers, but that's not reliable enough to raise your family on. They don't pay school teachers like we do. You can't just go get a job at Walmart. Walmart doesn't exist. And you can forget about the service industry. No one in the ancient world paid for a haircut or a meal in the way that we think of it today. That did not happen. And so if you cannot get a job and there's no state-sponsored welfare, what do you do when you can't afford to eat? The answer is you sell your labor to someone who can provide food, shelter, and clothing for you. Sometimes this broke up your family. Sometimes your kids went to one household and you went to another household. This is not an easy or a great solution, but it does let you eat. Second, 
It was temporary. Verse, verse 2 of chapter 21 very clearly says, When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. This is not lifelong slavery for either men or women. There's a verse in, in this chapter, chapter uh, 21, verse 7, makes it seem like maybe women were not set free in the same way. Deuteronomy 15 sets that to rest. Women do go free after six years. The same law applies to men and to women. And I'll say why that verse appears that way when we get to that in just a minute. But it was temporary. And this leads to maybe the most surprising point of all. Slavery actually had a constructive purpose for people who sold themselves. Deuteronomy 15 gives more details about these laws. And it specifically says, when the sixth year is up and the time of service is ended... You are to generously provide the laborer with animals, grain, and wine. That means he has a future source of income and enough food to live on until he's able to make the money to provide for himself and his family. In other words, by the end of his term of service, he should have learned how to run whatever family business you were in, and you would give him the startup cost for him to be able to do it himself. In Deuteronomy, God says very clearly, you will always have poor people. You are not going to fix society in such a way that the problems of poverty disappear. They're too closely connected to sin. And this is intended to provide work and a way for someone to be lifted up out of poverty. That said, it is still very much open to abuse. So it's not surprising that right after God gives the Ten Commandments, right after we're told, love your neighbor as yourself in six specific ways, people would ask, is my servant my neighbor? Do these laws about marriage and theft apply to slaves? And the answer is yes, they most emphatically do. And you can see over and over and over again, God's rules exist to protect vulnerable people. God has given rules that clearly apply the law to people who were the most vulnerable in society. And his laws are given to protect the destitute. And so with that as a background, let's go to our text. If you haven't already opened, let me encourage you to open the text now. And I want to be very clear today. There there are a few more landmines that we're going to go over in this text. Things that will be very distracting. So let me give you the main point of my sermon now. And I want to make sure that this, this hits home. I believe God is saying in these laws to you and I, we have a responsibility and an obligation to love the poor. Especially the poor within our church, but not only within our church, within our community. We have a responsibility to not only give someone a handout, but to help raise them up to a position of dignity where they can work and be generous with other people. Although these laws and rules seem strange to us, they are intended for the health and blessing of God's people. And God shows his love for the fatherless and the widow in how he protects him with these rules. So first... Let's look at the the first six verses of chapter 21, and we'll see my second point today. When a man becomes a slave. When a man becomes a slave. So read with me verses 1 through 6. 
Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. This text describes three situations, and the first two are very straightforward and easy, and so let me deal with those first. The first situation deals with married men who, for whatever reason, are forced to sell their labor for six years, and they stay married, and they come and go with their wife or with their children. In a similar, very straightforward way, single men who stay single leave well provided for. Where things get tricky is when a single man sells his labor for six years and marries someone else in the household. Because depending on when and how he and his wife came into the household, her six-year-long contract may expire later than his does. So you can imagine if a man has sold his time for six years, maybe he's five years into it, and maybe his master acquires a maidservant, someone who would help with housework, someone who would help raise the children. We might think of them as a nanny or a maid. And she also has a six-year contract, but she just started hers. Five years in, they fall in love, decide they want to have a family. He's free in one year, and now she has four years before she's free. So this is answering the question, what do you do then? Does she become free because she's his wife or no? And the answer is... No, she does not get out of her contractual obligation in order to remain with her husband. So her husband is left with three options. This is not a hopeless situation. He can, number one, buy her freedom. He can pay the same amount of money to the owner and the head of the house. But probably, he will not be able to do that, even with the things that he is supplied with as he leaves and is intended to be set up for a business. So that's a possibility. There are times when perhaps someone died in the slave's family and he comes into an inheritance and then is able to provide money. And that's that's a possibility, but it's not a very likely possibility. So the second option, he can wait until her six years are up. I don't think anybody likes that possibility, but it is a possibility. Or third... He can choose to remain with her as a permanent member of the household. You have to understand, there are several examples. Elijah has a servant who may have been like this. Abraham had a servant who almost certainly was like this. There is a possibility that being a servant in a successful household was very lucrative and very comfortable. So God allows for the possibility that someone can join the household permanently. But in doing that, he immediately recognizes, because of our sinful hearts, that possibility is almost certainly to be abused. So what he does 
is he requires a servant and a master in that position where the servant wants to permanently become part of the household to go before God. And this is described elsewhere in Scripture very clearly. They are to appear before a priest who represents God. And so there is an outside party who can assess, does this servant really want to join this man's household? Or is he being forced? Is he under compulsion to do something that he does not want to do? And so there is an opportunity for someone on the outside to assess the situation to see if it really is just. And I'm going to be honest, it wasn't a perfect situation. The prophets are very clear later on in the Old Testament that this was abused. There were wicked and evil masters who did not do as God had told them to do. So the fact that God is giving these rules does not mean that this created an ideal and a great situation. I want to be very careful to not imply that. But they are set up with the intention of providing protection for people who could not provide it for themselves. So, his ear is pierced to the doorpost. It's a symbol that he is permanently connected with the house. Recognize the intent of this law. Everyone in Israel is to be provided for and to experience the blessings of God. No one should go hungry. Given the uncertainty of the ancient world and how hard it was to make independent money, how hard it was to provide for your family, even allowing for the provisions that a freed slave was to be given, some would still prefer to stay part of a family that was well run where people had enough to eat. And I want to point out that there is an element of this, especially when you look at generational poverty, where kids do not learn how to function in society and instead learn how to receive income that they have not worked for our society tries to provide for for poor people in poor situations and i don't think it does it very well it is open to abuse and very often there is no dignity in the way that we provide assistance what this does is attempting to give someone the means of providing for themselves and I believe there's actually far more compassion in what God intends for this to, to be than there is in the system that we use today. So my third point for today, these are the rules that apply to a man who becomes a servant. How would this apply to a woman, someone even more vulnerable? And God gives her additional protection. So look with me at verses 7 through 11, and we'll talk about when a woman becomes a slave. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Now, like I said, there are a few landmines here. So, let me, let me discuss what this is. The first thing to keep in mind, ancient marriage does not work the way modern marriage does. We are free to marry whoever we want, and the only money that we spend is on the giant party we throw. 
in the ancient world, universally, and still in many places in the world today, women were purchased from the home that they were born into. There was a bride price that was paid. In this context, a man who sold his daughter was saying, I cannot provide for you. You may become part of a household that will provide for you. And there are two possibilities. She could, as I said earlier, become a nanny or a type of maid that would do house cleaning, that would help with with cooking, that would help with the household responsibilities. Or she could potentially become the wife of the head of the house or one of the children in the house. And marriage was permanent. But God is very clear when marriage takes place, if she marries your son, you treat her as a daughter. And if she marries you, you treat her equal with everyone else in your household. So marriage is not part of this deal. This is talking about something very specific that says all the laws about adultery, they still apply no matter how someone comes into your household. But those are the two possibilities. She may have served as a laborer or she may have married into the household and become permanently part of it. Here's the thing. Women are extremely vulnerable. There is no such thing as a single mom in the ancient world. There is no way that they can work fields or that they can go and be shepherdesses. This is why you find Ruth and Naomi in such a vulnerable place in the book of Ruth. Because they do not have the working options that are open to men. And so, when a woman was sold, it was likely that she would marry and become a permanent member of the household. If she was promised that, and the owner said, no, I don't want to do that, and changed his mind, he had broken faith with her, and he was to set her free with all of the food and clothing and benefits as if she had been there for six years. That's what that verse is talking about when it says she shall not go out as male slaves do. This is a protection so that someone who was promised marriage and then not married was still provided for. Additionally, by purchasing a maidservant, that did not make her your wife and her purity was to be protected. Do not commit adultery applies to maidservants. If she remained single, the same law that applied men applied to her. She would serve six years and be set free. And again, Deuteronomy 15 makes that especially clear. There is one law for both men and women. But frequently she did marry either the head of the house or more commonly one of the sons. And God is very clear that in marriage she is to be treated as an equal in the family and provided for in every way. The marital rights are an indication of how important it was to have children in the ancient world. Children were social security. Not only did our assistance programs not exist, there was nothing to help the elderly who could no longer work to provide for themselves. So you had children, so they would continue to work the fields to bring in the food so you could eat. The motivation for a woman to have children was incredibly high in the ancient world. And God says... You will provide for her in every way that you can. And now I need to to address the other major landmine in this text, the idea that God allowed polygamy. There was a possibility, especially if your wife hadn't born children, that you may want to take another wife so that you weren't poor and destitute when you were too old to work. And you can see God's heart for a woman in that situation. Very clearly in Genesis 
Leah is, is a wife who is not loved. And God clearly has compassion on her and cares that a woman in that position would be provided for with food and clothing and marital rights, meaning that you still need to try to provide a child for her to take care of her, even when he made a concession and allowed someone to marry a second wife. Now, let me be perfectly clear. Genesis 2.24 says, A man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. One. Singular. If you're trying to hold something in your hand and you keep putting things in it, it becomes impossible to hold on to anything. The original intent to cleave to your wife is not being followed when you have more than one spouse. Jesus in the New Testament says that divorce was permitted because of hardness of heart. I believe polygamy was also permitted for the same reason. This is not God's intent. Especially as you look at the New Testament, Jesus affirms Genesis 2.24 the exact same way, cleave to your wife, singular. And then as we understand that the picture of Christ and the church is of a bride and a husband, Jesus doesn't have any other wives. There is no room for polygamy within the church of God. So let me be perfectly clear. God is allowing this. He is not blessing it. In that context, it is very likely that if a man took a second wife, he was not pleased with his first wife. And so God lays down a law that says you will provide for her. This provision is protection for a woman. God says, if you do not do those three things, you are to set her free and provide for her generously, just as if she were freed under any other circumstance. So in the end, God is laying out rules that provide for the most vulnerable in society. These rules do not make a lot of sense to us. Hopefully no one here is tempted towards polygamy. If you are, talk to me later. No one here is planning on taking on a servant. But here's what I believe we need to take from this text. We all ask the question, who is my neighbor, every time someone comes up and asks you for money. Do I really need to help this person? Or for time, it doesn't have to be money. And we all like to think, you know, this person is not really my responsibility. I'm being honest, this is my heart. In the end, God says, the poorest people among you who are dysfunctional and are unable to provide for themselves, those people are your neighbor. And he intends for us to protect them and provide for them and to be generous with them. I believe this passage of scripture has everything to do with how we provide for the poor in Holly and around the world. This should inform our sense of right and wrong in politics. The governing question should not be what protects me the most, but rather how can we do our best to make sure that the poor and the needy are provided for in our society. We live in a community that does experience severe 
generational poverty. Holly has some terrible substance abuse problems. And it contributes in part to that. The systems that we have in place as a sort of safety net do not seem to help. And so our question as a church is, what do we do to help the needy among us? Are we like the priest and the Levite who walk by and say, you know, I have my own ministry. I, I, I have to do this other thing. I, I can't say that you're really my problem right now. So let me give us three applications that I think directly apply to how we should, as First Baptist Church of Holly, take care of the poor and the needy. Number one, work hard so that you can be generous with other people. Work hard so that you can be generous. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if a Christian does not work, he should not eat. Now that verse has been abused and taken out of context as an excuse to heartlessly not give to homeless people or to people who are suffering. That's not honoring to God. You are not supposed to callously say, oh, not working, I'm not going to help him. The reality is Paul is talking to Christians and saying, work. Work so that you can be generous with other people. There is a place for telling someone to get a job. The generosity of the church is not supposed to be abused. And yet, I believe that when we stand before Jesus, this is a Piper quote that Chris shared with me this week, he is not going to commend us Because we can proudly stand before him and say, you know what, Lord? No one ever took advantage of me. He's not going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You saw someone was needy, and because you were worried they were going to blow that money, you walked right on by. That is not commendable before God. What is commendable is a generosity that doesn't worry about whether or not you're being taken advantage of. That's my second point. We have an obligation to generously provide for other people. This is true for all people. Remember, Jesus says with the Good Samaritan, your neighbor is an ethnic minority who does not worship God in the right way. I believe if Jesus was telling that story today, very likely the Samaritan would be a Muslim. The reality is, Jesus says you are obligated to love even the people that you are afraid of that make you uncomfortable. Or to quote Virgil Long, your neighbor is anyone you ain't. The Samaritan in Jesus' parable forked over two denarii. That's a day's wage. So think about whatever you make. Somewhere around 200 bucks. Maybe a little less, maybe a little more. For someone he did not know who was in a dangerous part of the city. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was full of robbers, not not in the city, but he was in a place that was dangerous to stop and help someone. When I'm in a dangerous part of Flint, I don't immediately think of pulling over when I see a car. But I believe the expectation of Jesus that sometimes that's exactly what I need to do. Be generous. Thirdly and finally, this is especially true for other Christians. The generosity that we are instructed to have towards one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, I believe, is even higher than the generosity we are instructed to have with other people. And here's why. If you look at 
the book of 1 John, John very clearly says, if you fail to provide for another believer in need, you may not even know the Lord. That's how serious he takes it. And if you love your fellow Christians, not just your family, but the people in your church, then you will bless them materially. materially. And there are two passages that I'd encourage you to read that talk about that. Second Corinthians, whole book, talks about the church being generous with a church in Jerusalem. And if you read the book of Acts, you find radical generosity where people sell property and land and give to the needy within the church. And I believe as we look around, there are people that struggle in our church financially. And I think that means that we have room to grow in how we think of our benevolence ministry. It should not just be for people outside the church. And there's no place for a pride that says, you know, that money's not really for me. We need to love one another materially. And let me add, do not use benevolence ministry as an excuse to not reach into your own wallet. Sometimes the most important way that you can help someone is not to tell them to call the office and ask for help, but to help them yourself. I believe that kind of love is the kind of secret generosity that God especially loves. It might mean helping someone else find a job. It might also mean taking someone shopping and paying for their clothes. It might mean giving someone cash. It could mean providing transportation for someone whose car broke down. All of those things are a form of generosity. And I love to preach the gospel of the forgiveness of sins. I believe that's primarily what I'm called to do. But the Bible is very clear that you cannot talk about faith in the forgiveness of sins and then let people go hungry or let someone lose a job for lack of transportation. There is real hypocrisy there. Let me add this. The Bible says, do not be weary in well-doing. I understand. When you are helping needy people, it is easy to get tired and frustrating. Someone else asked on you this week, said poor people have poor habits. They make dumb decisions that increases the, the problems that they have. From the outside, that looks very frustrating. But the word of God says, do not be weary in well-doing. Understand that all of us are poor when we come to God and ask for help. And the scripture says that Christ, who was rich, made himself poor for us so that we could be made rich. My prayer is that we would all be like him. Let's pray. Father in heaven. I ask that you would forgive us for the sin of not loving our neighbor, of assuming that someone is not our neighbor because we don't know them. I pray that you would help us to see your heart and your love for the people who do not have anything. And I ask that you would increase our joy in giving. Help us to know the love of generosity. Make us generous people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.